Welcome everyone once again to the Toward Wholeness podcast where our desire is to help you take steps toward wholeness in both spirit, soul, and body. Uh, I have two special guests with me this morning who are uniquely qualified to talk about the subject on the table, a subject which I'll introduce momentarily. My guests are Nathan Nelson, who formerly worked with World Relief and Refugee Resettlement in uh, Seattle, Washington, and is currently the pastor of missions and outreach at Bethany Community Church, where I'm also privileged to serve as the senior pastor. And Kim Hurst is uh, the Northwest Director of Strategic Partnerships with World Relief and involved in World Relief at a national and global level, particularly in ways that are related to refugee resettlement. I want to welcome both of you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us, Richard. Really nice to be here talking about this topic today. And the topic we're talking about is so uh, appropriate for this moment. Even this morning as we listen to the news, the, the news feed has led for a couple of weeks now with the theme of Afghanistan. And I will say that Afghanistan is just yet another uh, piece of what feels like a wall of cultural stability that has been falling for a little while right now. Uh, I hear a common question today as a pastor, and the question takes various forms, but essentially the question is this, how do I live as a person of hope and joy in the midst of everything that's going on, all the suffering, all the injustice, all the vaccine wars and political polarization that I see happening all over the world, even in our own churches, we see now huge debates and people very angry at each other over over politics and uh, different perspectives on COVID. And then more recently, of course, this thing that has happened in Afghanistan has put people over the edge. Uh, I spoke with someone yesterday at a, at a staff retreat uh, who just said, I'm just so mad right now. How can our country abandon these people? How can I feel like we've broken these promises? And then somebody else chimes in, well, you know, it had to end sometime and there's never a good time. And then there's a debate going on and in the midst of it all, there's, a, there's a, just a heaviness in the air just because the, we're all so existentially aware right now that the world we live in is a dark, terrible place filled with immense oceans of suffering. Of course, not just Afghanistan, but all throughout portions of Africa, weekly in Chicago, all summer, massive gun death uh, and shootings, you know continuing issues with police, in Seattle, homelessness issues. It just goes on and on and on. Some friends uh, uh, who had moved to Los Angeles were back up in Seattle, and they, and they said, we walk Green Lake, and it just broke their hearts. Like, what's happening all around us? And it just gets so depressing. And then in addition, of course, almost everyone is fighting their own great personal battles, health issues, aging parents, struggles with children, financial issues. People trying to keep their business running. People right now trying to find employees for their business. And so the question on the table is this. I'm overwhelmed with the suffering of the world, the challenge of the world, and I'm facing my own personal suffering as well. How do I live as a person of hope in the midst of all this? So, Nathan, I'm going to start with you. You, you work with refugee resettlement in Seattle uh, as a partner presently in your current role at Bethany, partner with World Relief. You and I worked closely recently on a project uh, with the Aurora Commons, a ministry that is devoted to uh, serving the unhoused uh, and those facing housing challenges in the city of Seattle. 
So on a daily basis, you are encountering the kind of all the suffering. Tell us how you walk that world and go home at night without feeling like you need to drown yourself in alcohol or or (laughs) sorrows or something like that. How do you get by and what are you seeing on a daily basis? Well, that is a great question, Richard, and I'm eager to get everybody's input on this. We all are going to have a unique take. And I hope for those that are listening that we internalize what we hear and think about how to contextualize it for ourselves, for our lives, for the issues we face. I'll just begin with a a brief anecdote that I think kind of highlights the tension that we're getting at and the convergence of my worlds, both personally and professionally. So I just a week ago was on my first vacation in what felt like a very long time. I was at our beloved family beach cabin on the Oregon coast. It's this teeny tiny cabin that we've had for generations uh, right on the water. And it is my sanctuary. I've been going there from the time I was born until now. And so my wife and I were there, we're with friends and, you know, every desire in the world to just soak in the beauty around us and rest, rest after what Richard alluded to has been a very, very intense season uh, for us here at the church, really seeking to engage people in the issue of um, homelessness and, and, and other various topics as well. And it's in this context that I'm seeing the same newsfeed that everyone else is seeing. And my inbox is overflowing with what is happening in Afghanistan. Our partners at World Relief here in Seattle saying we are receiving refugees in greater number than we have all throughout COVID. They're primarily from Afghanistan. Can you help us? We've got the earthquake in Haiti. We have, you know, partnerships with World Relief in places all around the world and, you know, great concern for anywhere where they are experiencing tragedy. And on the same topic, what can we do in Haiti? And my heart is breaking. And I'm looking at the ocean at the same time. And so, you know, I think for me personally, the tension that I felt in that moment is the same tension I can only imagine everybody listening to this is feeling. And so I come back from vacation, I hit the ground running, you know, we were mobilizing disaster release funds as a church to try to come alongside folks fleeing Afghanistan, the devastation in Haiti. We are continuing in a posture of trying to, you know, help amidst a housing crisis in our city. We have heightening awareness around issues of systemic racism and the implications for Black-owned businesses on the south end of our city. You know, all of these things that we're seeking to engage in as a church. And, And I think what I came to this last Sunday, as I was tasked with sort of doing a devotional for our staff before our services began, was a need to to fall at the feet of Jesus, to read from the Psalms, to acknowledge the great pain that at least for me, I was feeling viscerally in the moment and prepare for people who want to enter into a place of worship, both to lament and to find a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of joy. And I think just acknowledging it is the first step, Uh, being aware that we cannot turn off our newsfeed because it feels like too much and retreat to whatever comforts we have personally in large part because to do so is a privilege. People in Afghanistan do not have that privilege right now. And so I don't think we should do that either. 
we need to find a way to enter into lament, to support a keen awareness of the brokenness in our world, and stepping in as people of hope. And so I'll, I'll talk a little more about how I, I think we do that, but that's the tension that I'm feeling. Well, I have to say, uh, Nathan, I really, I was in that meeting and I loved your word picture because you use the word dissonance. And as a musician, I immediately thought of, uh, if I play a B and a C together, they're just a half tone apart. It's not a pleasant sound. And I can resolve that by moving the C to a D moving the B down a, a step or t- two steps to a G or whatever. But if I, but to do that, then I'm saying, okay, uh, if the C represents joy and the B represents lament, I, I either have to ditch the joy or ditch the lament. And dissonance says to me, no, you have to live in the dissonance. Don't ditch the joy and don't ditch lament. I, I feel like that's, um, that's really a, a good word. So thank you. Kim, how about for you? Same thing. What kind of things are you seeing these days and how do you live in the midst of it and, and find um, the capacity to get up in the morning and do what you're called to do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, like anyone listening to this, there are just a lot of things that greet my consciousness every morning when I wake up. I'll start with my, I'll put on my World Relief hat for a second. World Relief is a humanitarian aid organization. And so the point of what we do is run towards suffering in the way firefighters run into burning buildings. And as an organization, we work in certain areas, mass displacement of people, oppression and violence, extreme poverty and disasters. And we do that by working through local churches like Bethany Community Church. And as as Nathan knows, le- with local churches in places far, far away like Rwanda, uh, where Nathan is and, and the rest of the BCC family have been very involved. Of course, since August 14th, on, as an organization and along with the rest of you, our attention has been turned toward the mass displacement of people from Afghanistan, just suddenly uprooted. And that's that's so often the case for people. It's just sudden. And it comes on before you've had a chance to sometimes even realize it's about to happen. But we've also got the twin disasters in Haiti happening at the same time, uh, where there was an earthquake on one day, followed by a tropical storm the next day, and um, just leaving a lot of people with very few resources at their disposal. So your question is, where do you go to find hope? And I've got a lot of things I'd like to say, but the picture that's in my mind right now is a picture that I saw recently uh, sent from our Haiti staff of a church that has crumbled. It's, it's obviously a church from the shape of the building. You can tell it's a church, but, but the stones have all fallen out. And if there was glass, it's gone and it's all cattywampus. But sitting in front of it on benches made out of discarded pieces of that broken building are a group of pastors sitting around. They represent different denominations that don't maybe get along. They represent different leadership styles, different traditions, different what, and they're sitting in a circle together to say, hey, we have formed this relationship together over the last few years to work together with World Relief to meet this community. And now this community has been struck by these things, but they are not without hope because we're here, we're the church, and we are going to do what we do every day of the week, which is bring the love of Jesus as a collection of church 
brothers and sisters to the lives of these people. And so the photo of that um, mm. crumbled mm. church with those people sitting in a circle around it uh, shows two sides of the same story. It shows the devastation along with the hope in the very same image. And I think that that is what uh, has me get up each day excited to face whatever's ahead because, mm. yeah, there's going to be trouble, but there is never not hope. You know, Kim, thank you for that. And it is a it is a great picture and reminds me actually of somewhere in the Psalms where uh, I, I believe it's David who articulates, uh, even if the mountain should fall into the sea, uh, there is something going on here that is a hope available without any contingencies, right? Regardless of earthquake, regardless of, and where uh, this is what I've always felt is to me the most compelling invitation of the gospel. It's not heaven, though that's fine. It's it's that in the midst of a suffering world, there's this Emmanuel piece. There's this God is with us, empowering us to live in the midst of whatever happens each day in, in a way that transcends circumstances. And I think our world hungers for that. And often the gospel isn't framed that way, unfortunately. It's framed as a, simply a legal reconciliation between a really mad God and uh, and people in need of that reconciliation. But but this this gives me great hope. So I want to thank you first, Kim. And then I, I just I know for you in, in the past season, it's been not just a matter of going to work and facing challenges, but coming home and facing challenges too. So tell us a little bit about that and how that has yeah. affected uh, this journey, how you hold all these things together. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're right about that. And, and um, this piece about pe displaced people becoming suddenly displaced and the fact that there's just no warning is something I've really related to, especially since one night last October on a perfectly normal day, my husband and I had just sat down to, to eat some snacks while we tuned into our small group meeting on Zoom. And a phone call came in on Rich's phone on a number that he didn't recognize. And he thought it was a person who was going to be new to the small group who maybe didn't have the Zoom link. Uh, so he picked up the call, though he normally wouldn't have. And I saw the look on his face when he realized that the caller was from the doctor who did a physical that morning. He walked into a different room and, and took the call and he came out a couple of minutes later and said to the group gathered there on the Zoom, guys, I need to um, turn the host of this Zoom meeting over to one of you because I just got a call from a doctor that I saw this morning saying, whatever you're doing right now, stop doing it and be driven to UW Hospital where they're holding an emergent of a room for you in the ER. Mm. I, I didn't know that was a thing that they held a room in the ER, but I just looked at him. I'm getting the news at the same time as everybody else. And I looked at him and he just turned over the meeting. We prayed together and then we got in the car and we drove. And other than praying uh, for the first mile or so together, basically, uh, you know, Lord, we have no idea what is about to happen in our lives, but you do. And uh, we just commit the rest of these hours and however long after that to you. And then we didn't say anything for the drive to the hospital and we get there and sure enough, the room is waiting for us. People are coming in and out, asking questions, drawing blood. We, we're so in the dark. And then two people came in with white coats on and on their jacket, it said, 
hematology oncology and I'm like, I know what oncology is. And I think hematology is blood. And I really don't want no more than that. Well, so began the, a, a 24 hour period where we learned that uh, Rich has leukemia and there are a whole bunch of different kinds of leukemia and what you don't want is this particular kind. And then we find out he has that particular kind. And what you don't want is to have this particular kind with certain mutations. And then he has these certain mutations. And then uh, within 24 hours or so, we're on a Zoom with our kids and the medical team. By now he's in a room and um, they're telling us all these things. And they said, you feel free to ask any questions. And one of our kids, adult kids on Zoom said, um, how long does my dad have? And they said, unless we can intervene in ways that we don't know yet right now are possible, probably two months. So that's the kind of sudden uncertainty where, where you're like, you know, we didn't ask for this. We didn't deserve this. We didn't anything, anything, anything. This is a particular disease where you don't get it through some lifestyle choice. Um, And so the next day, among other things, Rich and I are having a conversation where he's giving me all of his passwords to his email accounts and social accounts and Facebook account and everything. And I'm telling you, that is like the, the 21st century version of, you know, a day of reckoning mm, kind of a thing. That's right. Um, I will say just, just quickly jumping to the spoiler alert, we're well past the two month mark and Rich is alive. So I just want to inject that little bit of hope into this conversation as we proceed. But yeah, learning about um, finding hope in a time of utter uncertainty and utter chaos and news changing every half hour, which is really happens with this kind of disease. Um, We've been living with that at home as well as out there in the world. So in my in my world of observing the two of you, you in your professional life you carry so much in terms of the ocean of human suffering that you're seeking to address and the and the people, for example, in Rwanda that, that are delightful people that you're seeking to empower. But it from my chair it takes a huge toll. So that then when I envision you, Kim coming home and getting this diagnosis, if I put myself in your shoes, I'd be like this, I'm done. I'm quitting my job today and we're going to move to Switzerland or wherever is a happy place for you and have a big family reunion and live out our days and that'll be it, you know. Uh, how did you... How did you not do that? Let me ask it that way. Like, what, what, where do you find the fortification to continue to hold this suffering world in your professional life and your personal life? Yeah. Um, I've learned so much in the intervening eight or nine months, however many months it's been from end of October until now. But I'll go back to the beginning because at the beginning, you know, we, we had to find hope without the experience that we have now. And we've grown monumentally. So again, let me just add that to a list of things that we'll talk about as time goes by. We, we learn and we grow through these things. And we all have a memory bank of things that have been hard. Whether we care to remember them or not, they're there. So one of the things that I did from day one was draw on experiences of God's faithfulness. I love the word Ebenezer that shows up in the Old Testament. And so I call that my forest of Ebenezers. 
The Bible talks about the Israelites building a stack of stones, and I like to think of them as stones that are stacked like trees so that when I turn around behind me, I see what looks like stone trees, a forest of them in the in the ground behind me in the life that I've lived. One of the Ebenezers in my past was that I had about a 15-year battle with Lyme disease. And Lyme disease, in my case anyway, had sort of a bell curve arc to it where um, there were some symptoms at the beginning and then they grew and we didn't know what it was. And then it's the diagnosis of Lyme and then there's this treatment and the treatment is really tough on the body. Mm. And when the treatment was waning, then I'm sort of getting back to a normal life. And now here I am at the end of the 15-year bell curve and really things are going very well. But at the at the center of that experience was a time when for a period of a few weeks, I was quite incapable of taking care of myself, not to the point where I was hospitalized, but Rich and our kids had to sort of help me to eat. Mm. I was too weak to turn over in bed. Mm. I was rarely awake uh, at all for a few weeks. And when I was awake, I was just so out of it that when my kids would come into the room, I've sort of recognized them as people that I love. And and I think I recognize them as our daughters, but I couldn't for the life of me bring up their names. Uh, it was that kind of time. And yet, while I was in that sort of what I think of as being sort of under the surface period of time, my connection with God was closer than it's ever been. And I think it's because there were no filters. There was nothing sort of getting in the way. I wasn't aware of the news. I wasn't aware of hunger pangs. I wasn't listening to my kids maybe bicker. I was not worried about bills. I was just resting mm. in the presence of communion with the Lord, so much so that when I started to get well, uh, and I was aware that I was getting well, I was kind of not wanting to go back. I was thinking, oh gosh, I, I, this is really great. A few weeks after I was back up on my feet and able to resume duties, I was actually flying somewhere for a speaking engagement. And when I was in whatever airport that was, uh, I was on using the walking sidewalk and there was an announcement that says the walking sidewalk is about to end. Caution, the walking sidewalk is about to end. And it's meant to tell people you're going to have to do this all on your own here in about the next 10 yards. And, and I thought, yeah, that's what this feels like, mm. uh, you know, but I'm going to do it with this knowledge, uh, with this place that I went and, and, and people had said to me, oh, that must have been so terrible. And I would say it was kind of great. <laughs> it was suffering, but it was not only suffering. And I think that's another thing to keep in mind. Nothing is ever only suffering if you can go there with God. Well, you you, I love that you call us to remember God's faithfulness because God's faithfulness yesterday is indeed uh, fuel for our journey forward. I keep a gratitude journal for this very reason so that I can every day notice, oh, look what God has done today. I know my wife is just beginning such a practice also. Nathan, as a younger soul uh, with less of a bank of memories, talk to us about how you daily wake up, face the ocean of suffering and injustice that you see both locally in Seattle and globally and, and continue to have this beautiful smile and this great joy that you exude. Because I know for many people, they're just feeling the joy is, is being sucked away right now. 
Tell us how you move forward through this. It's a great question. And I'll share just a little bit in a moment about my experience with Kim and Rich um, through this past season. But, you know, I tell you, one of the things I've been privileged to do, even in my young years on this earth, is live amongst the poor. And that the material poor um, and in all kinds of contexts around the world. And I can tell you, I have never, even in the, what, from a, from a not so proximate place, we might project would be the hardest of hards kind of context to be in, in those places, I would say, especially in those places, the poor themselves have a joy that frankly is what led me to Christ. Hmm. And it continues to lead me and to bring me back to Christ anytime I'm privileged to be back in these places. And, you know, that can sound spiritual and sort of like mystical. That can sound like, oh, really, is that? I tell you what, I was not a person of faith when I first entered the poorest parts of the world and I left a person of faith. And it was because these people in the midst of their suffering embodied exactly what Kim said. They invited me to the feet of Jesus in a way that was authentic and tangible, that they relied upon it, that they found absolute and utter joy and happiness in it, that I thought, this is undeniable. I want this in my life. I have every privilege in the world, and I don't have that. And so, you know, I think, one, it's the experiences of, of, of being amongst the poor themselves that gives me great hope and great joy because, you know, many, many of my friends in, in different parts around of places around the world, you know, especially those that do experience poverty at many levels, I have never heard them say to me, Nathan, I wish that you would just be more depressed some of the time because, you know, I'm depressed and you should be depressed too. No way. These folks are aware that their circumstances are acutely challenging and they're not waiting around for something to happen for them to find contentment in their lives. They also aren't waiting for me or somebody else from someplace else to have pity on them for that to happen. And, and so I think the invitation that I've had from the poor themselves to find joy in, in whatever circumstances I find myself in frees me of this guilt that you reference, Richard, where, you know, you're looking at the, Whatever you're facing in your life, whatever petty thing that, you know, is perturbing you, you turn on the news, you see what's happening in Afghanistan, you go, oh my gosh, how could I be so upset about the dishes or, or whatever it is when these people are facing this thing? It frees me from that guilt because the reality is we are invited to join not just by God, but by those that are experiencing poverty themselves. And, uh, you know, I'll just share about my time with you, Kim and, and Rich. Before Rich's diagnosis, not long before, like a couple of months before, he was an integral part of licensing me as a pastor at our church. And I can tell you, when I was meeting with him in those days, he, to me, exuded the strength of God. He is someone who, I mean, his presence, he was he is a leader. And you see it as much as you feel it from him. The next time I saw Rich was through the glass window on your deck, Kim. And he was but a skeleton of himself. But the words that he spoke to me and the words that you spoke to me were stronger in faith and in joy than, makes me tear up, than ever before. 
And I'm telling you, it's people in suffering that have the greatest hope in the world. And so for those of us that are privileged to not experience suffering in those same ways, I believe the invitation is even stronger, not to guilt ourselves away from it, but to go, okay, I can hold this. And in the midst of that dissonance, I can actually find a calling to step in as a person on the daily basis, wherever I find myself, to embody the same hope that whether it's the poor or God himself are, are calling us to, to the people around us. And so that's what I seek to do. I seek to, to be someone who can readily speak with knowledge and wisdom to the broken parts of our world and, and to carry the burden of that with others. And I also want to be someone who can rejoice with you about whatever accomplishment, whatever thing you're excited about. Um, I have about 100,000 hobbies in my life, and they all bring me joy. And I'm excited to tell you about all of them anytime. This is who I, I am and I've become. And, and I really do think that it started with the poor inviting me to experience a vibrance of life that I couldn't have otherwise. That's really beautiful, Nathan. I know that one of your hobbies is um, pretty unusual, and that's uh, you're a flying trapeze artist. Uh, so uh, it'd be fun to uh, share that more with uh, with our listeners, perhaps. Maybe we can get a link or something so that people can watch you. I, I this is all so rich. I and uh, I warned you guys in advance that the time would go really rapidly, and of course it has. I think I want to close by asking one question and then I'll answer it and then ask the two of you to answer it as well. And the, and the question is, what do you say to people who just feel paralyzed right now because the ocean of suffering has created maybe even a multitude of questions that aren't being articulated clearly? It's like, on the one hand, where is God? On the other hand, why do I have so much? And what, how do I live right now? You know. And my answer often takes me to Ecclesiastes, which is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And I say to people who are not living in the midst of suffering, don't worry. All of us have our day because Ecclesiastes 3 says, look, there's a time for everything. And so if you're enjoying a season of health and prosperity right now, don't feel guilty. It's a season God has given you so that you can, from a position of strength, walk in solidarity with those who are suffering or from a position of abundance, share resources with those who are suffering. Guilt is the last thing you need, uh, or kind of survivor's sorrow or some paralysis. Uh, in fact, your day, everybody's day comes, right? So uh, I go, there's a time for everything. And if, you, if you're in a t season of grace in a world on fire, then grab a bucket and help put the flames out because you have the strength and resources to do so. And don't worry, you can't put the whole fire out, but there's a step you can take. That's a little bit my answer. Whatever your hand finds to do, Ecclesiastes 9, whatever your hand finds to do today, do it with all your might. So if you're cooking a meal for your family, man, add some garlic, spice it up, make it good, not just acceptable, because this is your day today to be alive. That's my answer. Kim, how about you? Uh, I, I, it's, it's such a good question. And, and I think my answer a few years ago to what do you say would have been something different than what I would say now, which is at first I try and say almost nothing. I'm learning to listen hmm. because when I want to know more about what 
it is that the person is suffering from when they're coming to me saying, I, I just don't know how to handle this. And, and as I listen, sometimes I'll hear some clues. Sometimes I'll hear the clue that the person essentially is basing their life philosophy on karma that says, I'm a good person, or these are good people, or these are in, innocent people, and it shouldn't be that way. Um, or they're basing their uh, their life on a philosophy of what I guess would be called social evolution, which says that the longer humans are around, the better they are at solving life's problems. And that one shows up when people say, aren't we better than this by now? You know, or the third one that I'll hear is people are giving me clues to the fact that they have placed their faith in someone or something that can't sustain their mm -hmm. faith for hope. So it may be a person, a leader, a spouse, a political party. It may be nature itself, which a lot of people, probably a lot of the people who listen to this podcast love to go into nature and be in creation, but some of them maybe idolize creation and not the creator behind it. And then when the earth begins to be corrupted, that's one more thing that they had sort of put their hope into that isn't able to sustain their hope. So after I've listened for a while, I just try and, and meet the person there and not a general sense, but whatever the answer is, it's usually going to be found in the scriptures. I'm just a big Bible nerd. And I just really think that the Bible is going to address the thing that you want to hear. So if, I, if I'm if i going to give them some advice, which I'm going to end up probably doing, one of the pieces is going to be whatever is the thing that's causing you stress, spend as much time in the word of God today, each day, as you do on that thing. Mm -hmm. So if the news causes you stress and you read the paper for an hour, read the Bible for an hour first. <laughs> if it's talking to friends who are worked up, before you do that, read the Bible for as much time as you're going to give to that. And I just find that starting the day, approaching the Lord, maybe you're a Bible reader, maybe it's some other way, but that just puts you, I think, in a position to be able to handle the hopelessness that you're going to feel. Beautiful, Kim. Um, Thank you. Nathan, let's close with you. What do you tell someone? I think for me personally, it it definitely falls back on my greatest sense of burden and, and in many ways calling in this role that I'm in currently, which is the pastor of mission here at Bethany. And, it, and it's directly linked to what I was just sharing. I think that it is incumbent upon everyone, regardless of circumstances, to find themselves in relationship with those different from themselves and especially the most vulnerable. And so my job in partnership with Kim in partnership with world relief and many other organizations locally and globally is, and has been to build pathways to relationship between members of our congregation and the most vulnerable in our city and various places around the world. And to the extent that those pathways provide opportunity to leverage assets and resources that one community has and another has, and, and they're a match for greater growth together, may it be so, but at the heart and soul of any connection, of any program, of any community development initiative, of any advocacy or systemic change initiative is relationship. Mm. And we are a people who are transformed in the context of relationship. And so, you know, my encouragement for someone who goes, what can I do? Woe is me. 
or, you know, experiencing this guilt. We talk a lot at our church and our kind of missional theology around a framework introduced by a guy, Bryant Myers, at formerly at Fuller Theological Seminary. And he introduces this concept of the God complex versus a, a sort of low self-esteem, an inflated sense of purpose that I can and should and, and, and am able to be more than I can be in the world or then the opposite of that. I can't do anything. And the reality is um, both are incorrect, <laughs> but that we can do something. It's only by God's strength and God's power and the community of saints around us that we can do such a thing. And we are not allowed to just retreat to our you know, corner of comfort in the world, whatever that is. We're called into action. And that action, I really do believe, ought to be centered on relationship. And so if you're finding yourself as apathetic, uh, towards things, or if you're finding yourself with a sense of hopelessness, what can I do I, in my own strength? Find a way to begin to develop inroads of relationship with the most vulnerable in your context. And let those relationships teach you. Let them give you guidance as to what you actually can do. And learn. Learn from those relationships in a way that you yourself maybe begin to experience the same hope that I've been describing. I've, I've been blessed to experience through the many relationships with the poor around the world that I have. That's super, Nathan. Thank you. I think what we want to do is make sure that uh, in the notes that accompany this podcast, we'll have ways for people to get involved in world relief and refugee resettlement. Because to just to echo what both of you have said in different ways, there is nothing with a capital N, nothing that is as life-changing as encountering people who are living out the gospel in a different cultural context. Uh, as we'll see, oh, okay, uh, um, joy is not contingent on high-speed internet. It's not contingent on the perfect health plan. It's not contingent on hardwood floors. Not contingent on access to you know the most recent vaccine. Not contingent on the right political party being in office. I mean, we've the three of us have seen people exuding immense joy in the midst of civil war and abject poverty in ways that uh, uh, all of us need to see. And so thanks, and I, we want to encourage everybody to get involved. I want to thank the two of you for taking the time today to share this uh, and know that uh, I think it'll receive a wide listening because I think it's an issue that everyone has on their minds right now. So thanks everyone for listening to the Toward Wholeness podcast, and we'll look forward to chatting again soon.